2: Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions—that's Wonder made possible.
1: Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. Welcome, 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 welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast.
0: We have one of our very favorite guests, Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Giroux, who released his supplementary estimates for 2023-24 20, report and has said, and I was looking at this number several times, including 2 o'clock this morning, maybe that's why I didn't get to sleep, has said federal employees' salaries and benefits topped $67 billion. $67 billion. Also, the parliamentary budget officer stated, as Global News reported, the federal government's carbon price could generate more than $5 billion from the federal sales tax over the next seven years, but none of that is directly earmarked for climates. We have a lot to talk about with Monsieur Giroux. Good to have you with us, Monsieur Giroux. How are you?
3: I'm good. Thanks. And you, I hope I'm not responsible for putting you to sleep later on in during the show. <laughs> no, I hope not. Anything could put me to
0: sleep right now. i tell telling you, uh, it's, I'm sort of doing it, with, you know, that old joke about I'm doing, I'm doing what I'm doing with one eye propped open with a toothpick. That's, that's where I am. Oh my goodness. It's just the human condition. Uh, your supplementary estimates for 2023-24 20, report. Let's just start with this. Did I read this correctly? Uh, federal employee salaries and benefits, topping $67 billion?
3: Yes, that's accurate. So it's the salaries, of course, overtime, but also contributions to pension plans, to EI and CPP that the employer has to provide on behalf of employees, that topped $67 billion in 22-23. And based on the latest numbers that we saw released by the government, um, it's on track to be 6.6% higher uh, based on the trend for the first eight months of the fiscal year. So, it's uh, slated to be even higher this year. So, how do you react to that? (laughs) Well, two ways. it's not necessarily bad to have an increase in the number and the cost for the public service if that's what Canadians want and also if we are getting services as citizens. But uh, that discourages me a bit when we see that the size of the public service and its cost is increasing, but the services we are getting – don't seem to be increasing noticeably. And I say that as a person who doesn't rely on services, on government services a lot, but I'm thinking about Aboriginal communities who need services, those who are on EI and need their 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 applications processed quickly, or those who need uh, immigration papers and are desperately waiting for these, and it takes the time that it takes, and that doesn't seem to bother that many people.
0: Yeah, it's almost impossible to get a quick response from government and you're dealing with the federal government. So when I try to call a federal agency, first of all, I have to find the phone number, which isn't always easy. And then you find the phone number and you call and uh, like as not you're going to get voicemail. And uh, and then when you actually do talk to a person, and maybe I'm too cynical here, but often I've uh, I've I've received the answer well, I can't help you. Pardon? So you can't help me? this is part of the sixty uh, 67 billion how many people are we talking about how many employees
3: uh, we're talking about four hundred and thirty thousand people if I'm not mistaken so it's uh, quite a sizable public service and it's it's increasing as I said so we're looking at at the end of last fiscal year one uh, four hundred and thirty two thousand people so and that's probably increasing. We don't have the final number or the most recent number is what was at the end of March 2023, and it was almost 432,000.
0: Okay. Uh, on to something else. I didn't read anything in your report about this, but it's the number one news story for many people. Do you have any preliminary numbers on our, on ArriveCAN?
3: Uh, my colleague, the very capable Karen Hogan, uh, Auditor General, looked at ArriveCAN And uh, I didn't look at that because she was on it and it's uh, something that she paid a lot of attention to and she released a report on it. So I let her deal with that. And there was a committee of the House led by Mr. Kelly McCauley, who also looked at that. So there was enough people looking at that issue. I focused on on other things.
0: Yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about that uh, situation, including yesterday. And it has... uh, it's got layers, so many layers to it. And even your your colleague, the Auditor General, wasn't able to follow all the the, the leads. So much more on that to come. Now, let me ask you about this. The, if the federal government's uh, carbon price could generate more than $5 billion from the federal sales tax over the next seven years, if I have this correctly. But none of that is earmarked for climate initiatives. Can you talk to us about that, please?
3: Uh, Sure. So it's the GST that will be collected or, yeah, collected in addition to the carbon tax as a result of having a carbon tax. So as people may or may not know, when there's uh, something added to the price, such as the carbon tax, the GST is the final thing that gets added. So if you increase the carbon tax or you put a carbon tax, on anything, fuels, for example, then the GST um, that's collected gets higher, and it's 5%, obviously. So, we estimate that in the current fiscal year, there'll be about close to $500 million in GST collected just due to the presence of a carbon tax. And as the carbon tax increases over time, that should reach a billion dollars by 2030, 2031, when the price of a ton of carbon will reach $170. So that's additional revenues that the government will be collected, and that's what uh, we estimate uh, the amounts to be.
0: That's a considerable amount of money. You told us previously as well, and I just want to ask you whether this is still, uh, as you see it, as the carbon tax does reach that $170 per ton in 2030, lower income canadians will still receive rebates but for the middle class and the higher earners it's a different reality they'll actually be paying out more money is that still uh, is that still your your assessment of the situation
3: yes that's still the assessment the framework around the carbon tax has not changed the economic situation has not dramatically changed and the composition of household is still the same as it was when we released our report in 2023. So it's still our view that the the carbon tax will have redistributive impacts that won't be the same um, based on the composition and the level of income of individuals.
0: Okay. Our guest, Yves Giroux, the parliamentary budget officer, who just talked to us about the federal government's carbon price, uh, could generate more than $5 billion from the GST over the next seven years. But none of that $5 billion is earmarked for climate initiatives. I know what it's for. I know what it's for. Um, Stephen Gilbo is going to put the money toward building roads. Okay, it's a bad joke. I've been on a long time already. Um, Mr Giroux, looking at the highlights of your supplementary estimates report for 23-24, concerning funds the government is. I'm correct about this, right? This government, uh, it's funds they are requesting for additional, uh, or additional funds they are requesting for, for the, for this calendar year or the, for the next fiscal year. Is that right?
3: Yeah. For the current fiscal year. So it's the supplementary year. estimates, supplementary estimates C. So the last opportunity for the government to request funding between now and the end of March. So that's their last chance. And that's what they're doing with sub C as we call them.
0: Okay. Um, uh, there've been some, there's some big numbers here and some major initiatives like, uh, defense spending, uh, money's required to, uh, to engage first nations. Can you give us some of the more significant issues and expenditures they're
3: requesting? Sure. So they're looking, the government is looking at spending an additional $13 billion in the subsea. And there's about 2.4 for personal spending, which we've briefly talked about a few minutes ago. So it's compensation for public servants. Uh, there's 2.2 billion to the Department of National Defense, including for aircraft projects, such as the replacement for the Aurora patrol aircraft. And there's $2 billion for Service Canada, most of which is related to First Nations child and family services. And there's also some, a few hundred million dollars for uh, writing off Canada student financial assistance program, so student loans. Okay, now we've talked about
0: the uh, National Pharmacare program with you in the past, and it's been conjecture because nobody has shaken hands on it. But now we have Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Singh Shaking hands on the creation of a national pharmacare program, can you remind us, please, what your numbers show? This will cost Canadians.
3: So we costed something that was talked about a couple of months ago, and it's been talked about for a few years, in fact, and that's a universal pharmacare program that would replace public uh, insurance plans that some of us have through our employer public plans that cover the elderly for example or low income individuals as well as direct federal expenditures for first nations for veterans so a universal plan where we wouldn't as individuals we wouldn't pay anything so no co-payment and no uh, no um, franchise every year so we estimated that would cost an additional billion in its first year of existence, rising to about $13 billion in 27-28. And that's based on um, a coverage of the types of drugs that are covered in Quebec by the provincial plan, because that was what was talked about by proponents of a universal drug plan. And that's in addition to the expenditures that governments already incur, for example, Provinces for their pharmacare programs and direct program expenditures at the federal level, so a net new thirteen billion dollars can we afford that? That's a good question um it depends how much we are willing to add to the debt or how much we are willing to be taxed in addition to offset that expenditure. It's all a matter of choices, yeah, but it's a good question what is
0: our debt um, what's our national debt now and where, where, where are you projecting
3: it to be perhaps in 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 a year or so can you
0: do can you do that
3: sure sure it's uh the net debt it's supposed to be at about 1.2 trillion dollars so 1220 billion dollars so it it represents about 42% of gdp so slightly less than what the country produces in a year and it's scheduled to rise a bit um, over the next couple of years. As long as we have deficits, it's going to continue rising. But as a share of GDP, it should stabilize and start decreasing slightly in 2025-6 and thereafter. That's before the budget is stable and before We know what the government plans on doing with a national pharmacare program or other expenditures that are in the pipeline, such as a disability benefit or potential increases to the national defense, uh, national defense, our Canadian armed forces to reach the 2% target uh, that NATO has asked members to commit to.
0: So if I ask you about the national debt, I have to ask you as well about the deficit. Where do we stand with the deficit now?
3: The deficit is about, uh, was about, or is expected to be $46 billion this year. We'll get numbers on that when the Minister of Finance tables her budget. And in the absence of all these additional spending measures that we talk about, it should be 20, $39 billion next year. And again, decreasing slightly to be below $20 billion in twenty eight twenty nine. But that depends on what the government does with all these other things that have not been implemented but promised, such as a disability benefit and a national pharmacare care program, mm-hmm. just to name these two. Okay.
0: Also depends on how Canadians vote in the next election, which is going to become uh, coming down before that time. I always ask you this, and since I've been up since 2 o'clock in the morning, is there anything that keeps you awake at night concerning federal government spending practices and
3: projections? Um, The thing that keeps me awake at night is the not necessarily the absolute level of spending, but the fact that we are having an increasing public service, increasing in size. There's more consultancy, but yet the performance targets of government departments and agencies don't seem to be met. There's about half of these targets that are not met or for which there's no measurable outcome. So we're spending $67 billion on the public service, $20 billion on consultants. And yet we are meeting, our departments are meeting about half of their performance targets. And I I, I can't figure out why. News today that Israel's war
0: cabinet was briefed on talks in Paris with mediators from Egypt, Qatar, and the United States over a possible ceasefire deal in Gaza, which would see the return of Israeli hostages held by Hamas, as well as the release of Palestinian prisoners being held in Israel. And as another news story, you maybe have heard it, In, uh, in Tel Aviv, police broke up a protest calling for the resignation our Prime Minister Netanyahu. Ambassador Vivian Birkovich joins us. She's the former Canadian ambassador to Israel, and she joins us from Tel Aviv. Ambassador, how are you?
4: I'm very well,
0: thanks. How are you, Roy? I'm, I'm doing just fine. We, we will get you on the Zoom link uh, at, at the break. Thank you for calling in. There's always something that seems to misfire, and then uh, it, must, it must be me. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Paris talks? Seeking agreement on a ceasefire. What are your thoughts on that, first of all?
4: Oh, it's such a tough issue. Um, Everyone here just desperately wants and needs those hostages released. Um, It's been an agonizing almost five months. And so the fact that there is something real going on that offers, you know, a glimmer of hope is beyond welcome. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a mixed bag though because the terms, of course, are always you know um, stacked against Israel. I mean, you know, for every civilian that uh, par- Israel will release, we're talking about three or four convicted terrorists. I mean, these aren't nice people. This isn't these aren't people who are, you know throwing stones or you know um, convicted of minor. Um, Minor sort of uh, you know security related offenses. these are suicide bombers and really serious terrorists like Ifia Sinwar, who was released in a previous deal. So you know there's a the ratio of three or four to one um, you know terrorists to civilians um, and uh, the the negotiation term seem to indicate that um Hamas will. You know, decide as always who, which Israelis they'll release without telling anyone in advance. Whereas they dictate the list of you know who Israel releases. Um, So they're talking about releasing about forty. They still hold 134 Israelis, and uh, among those are a few Thai nationals. And apparently, the terms are that about around they're saying 40 will be released, and first people to release will be women, uh, children which, of course, Hamas says they don't have, but they may. Um, Women, children, elderly, and sick. Well, those categories alone come to way more than 40, Um, so not sure how they're counting them. And we also don't know how many have died in captivity. Of the 134, Israel says that uh, 29 are now uh, dead, murdered. Um, Hamas uh, apparently says that number is higher. So the terms are, you know, this hostage release, um, six-week pause in the fighting, which I think is a really good thing. Uh, no one wants to be fighting over Ramadan. It'll just be horrific. Um, and those are the main terms. Those are the main terms. So, I think everyone here is, is is buoyed by the possibility that hostages may be released and devastated by the possibility and likelihood that many will remain in captivity.
3: Yeah.
0: Um are you hopeful that this is going to be achievable or are you are you doubtful, knowing the, 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 the countries that are involved in the in the negotiations?
4: Look, I don't, I I don't know no more than anyone else. Um am I hopeful that there will be if I am because I think that um Hamas desperately needs a reprieve um from the fighting. Uh, it, we we know that there's uh that Sinwar has been cut off from uh the Qatar based leadership for probably a few weeks now um their supplies are low they're very they seem to be disorganized having said that there are still four brigades of Hamas fighters and some of spiders fighters based in Rafah um and Israel is determined to you know make sure that they don't retain their military strength and they'll resume a military operation after a six-week, you know, pause and fighting. So, I mean, both sides want and need a break. You know? Um, the, the civilian aid has, the humanitarian aid has to get in. Um, and everybody knows that. Uh, there's tons going through Israel, there's virtually none coming through Egypt. Um, so maybe the international community can put some pressure on Egypt and Hamas to, to get it through there. And anything that will bring hostages home um, makes me hopeful. Anything that leaves hostages there in their medieval tunnels just devastates. You know, I mean, I, I'm giving myself, but yes, I'm hopeful that something will come out of this because both sides need it. And Qatar needs it. Let's not forget, like, Qatar is allied with Hamas and Iran, okay? And this whole... um episode, you know, the last five months, has really allowed Qatar to kind of step up and, and burnish its international image as the kind of, you know, the mediator, the go-between, the trusted emissary. And um, the fact is, they're trusted by Hamas. Now We need them. Uh, you know, I mean, the Qataris have a tremendous amount of gain, and at the end of the day, they control Hamas. The Hamas leadership resides in Qatar. Um, you know, the Hamas receives lots and lots of money, more than the cash envelopes you referred to when you were discussing Guibo. Um, you know, literally suitcases full of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, constantly. So, you know, so everyone's interest to have a pause here. Qatar looks good. Hamas needs it. Israel desperately wants it. Mm-hmm.
0: We had another n- news story today about um, a protest, significant protests right. were told, against uh Prime Minister Netanyahu and Israelis oh. is, uh wanting him out of office and seeing him as a uh an issue, a problem in getting the hostages back. Is that's what's is that's what's happening?
4: so the protest last night that, that turned violent, um there were two thousand uh protesters outside of the IDF headquarters in Tel Aviv. And I, I based on my understanding of what went on, and I actually almost went, uh, didn't it at the last minute. My understanding is it was a real mixed bag of everybody. You know, there's like the hardcore BB's got to go. There are the, you know, let's have elections crowd, which aren't necessarily BB's got to go, but we need elections. Why? Because um, this government has lost the confidence of the people. Very obvious in poll after poll. It's not a kind of, you know, one off thing, and um, in my view, and I think many Israelis share this view is uh, that they, they simply don't have the mandate to do what they've been doing for the last you know year and a half almost since, since this coalition was formed. Um, they've moved forward on some very bold um, fundamental you know changing uh, the nature of state institutions in Israel, and uh, they did not have the mandate for those kinds of initiatives, so that's what the protests last year were all about. And then, of course, with the war, every, the protests kind of stopped. Um, and they're going to start up again. And it's going to be worse because uh, the government is seen to not have legitimacy. Um, there's a tremendous crisis of um, confidence in the government and in, in the top brass of the military. Because, I mean, let's not forget how this happened. It's a complete failure and breakdown of the great and storied IDF. You know, that Hamas just kind of rampaged through. So people are really angry and mistrustful and have lost confidence, and they want to have a say, and they need a say. Because we're in for a long haul. We're going to have, you know, there's going to be a war in the northern front. Everyone knows that. is not over. Um, it's a very extreme government, and most people don't support it and don't want it. So to me, it's about, you know, a lot of people have very strong views about Bibi, um, and he's the prime minister, of course, but I think it's it's about a lot more than just BB.
0: Mm-hmm. My guest is Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel, who's joining us from Tel Aviv. By the way, I should tell you as well, uh, have a look at uh, stateoftelaviv.com, stateoftelaviv.com, Deciphering Israel Right to Left, a weekly newsletter and podcast, which is hosted by Ambassador Berkovich. Uh, can you just talk to us, please, about, and this is such a, a volatile issue internationally, uh-huh. as you know, Rafa and the IDF. Uh-huh. What about it? What's well, what, going on what, what can you tell us? What, what, uh, what do we need to know?
5: So Rafa is uh, a city in normal times, as in not war times. I think it's about 250,000, 300,000 people, southern uh, tip of the Gaza Strip, uh, borders with Egypt and um, has become a real hub for Hamas for a number of reasons. Um, One is that other operational divisions of Hamas that have been further north in the Strip have been pushed south by the IDF, and that's intentional to concentrate them. Um, And the other is that there are massive tunnels uh, that operate between um, Egypt and the Gaza Strip. Massive. Which um, is how most of the weapons uh, that Hamas uses that come from Iran, North Korea, and other places like that, uh, how they're smuggled into the Gaza Strip. So, and you and Egypt, on the other hand, though, is very um, very opposed to Hamas, hates Hamas. Um, Hamas is a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is a fundamentalist Islamist organization started in Egypt uh, many decades ago. And the current government of Egypt is uh, very, very strongly opposed to Muslim Brotherhood. So you know, you may have seen photos recently in the in the media of the refortification of the border between Egypt and the Gaza Strip. Mm-hmm. It's just wild, you know, yeah. rows and rows of barbed wire and walls and ditches and turrets and I mean, it makes Israel look like a playground. Our borders. So um, what's happening now is a, the Population in Rafa has swelled because there are many displaced uh, Palestinians from other parts of the Gaza Strip who have fled to Rafa for safety. There are about a million and a half people in there, and um, Israel is determined to do this uh, final assault on Rafa to root out Hamas. Um, and there's no question that Hamas is there. What's going on is uh, Israel is working hard and trying to move the displaced in Rafa and other civilians to various sites where they would, you know, set up kind of temporary uh, shelter uh, camps, you know, with tents and and the facilities and the food that they need. But there are a lot of forces uh, within the Palestinian um, communities in, in, uh, in the Gaza Strip and as well Hamas that that blocks this kind of movement because they use the civilians as human shields. So that's the whole Rafa thing. At the moment, it has become this focus of so much activity. Mm-hmm. No one knew what Rafa was two weeks ago, but now the whole world does.
0: <laughs> yeah, now the whole world does. Let me just yeah. bring the focus uh, on this country, mm. and and uh, you've you've been singularly unimpressed <laughs> with. I could say other things, but you've been singularly unimpressed with really? Prime Minister Trudeau and Foreign Affairs Minister Jolie. Mm. But you were very impressed with the visit to Israel by former prime minister, Stephen Harper, who appointed you the ambassador, Canadian mm-hmm. ambassador to Israel. Has anything changed your view of Mr. Trudeau and Madame Jolie and talk to us a little bit, please, about Mr. Harper's visit?
5: Um, no, nothing. I mean, you're being very charitable as you, in the way in which you present my views. And thank you for that. Um Nothing has changed. If anything, day by day, my views of those two just gets worse. Um, I think think their understanding of um, global geopolitics is uh, non-existent. Complex geopolitics um, is just laughable. And um, they just flail. And they also, while they flail, say and do very, very damaging and stupid things. And they've destroyed Canada's, you know, standing internationally, and not just in the Middle East. I mean, not just in Israel, not just among other countries, uh, with other countries in Israel. But I think globally, I don't think, well, I don't think I know that Canada's just not taken seriously anymore. I mean, it's it's embarrassing how we conduct ourselves on the international stage. I mean, the contrast is, you know, um, Stephen Harper was here for really about 36 hours. It was quite um, an extraordinary visit. Uh, I. Th- He's been here a few times on private, but it's very low key. You know, that's his approach, unlike the others. And it's it's amazing. I know that uh, he was wildly, warmly received. Taxi drivers, you know, still remember who Stephen Harper is and was and love him. Um, He received so much positive attention here and not it wasn't organized and, you know, government. It was really spontaneous kind of. Um, genuine affection from the people here who understand how supportive he was and not blindly supportive, but Stephen Harper understands um, geopolitics. And it's not about, you know, agreeing with everything Bibi does or doesn't do. It's about understanding uh, the place of Israel, uh, not just in the Middle East, but kind of as the vanguard of pushing back Islamists. And very violent islamists and uh they're they're on the doorstep they're on the front porch in the west too like the stuff that went down in israel on october 7th you know um can happen anywhere so one of the best stories so i was speaking with uh someone very you, i've only i only it's have speaking. about 30
0: i only have about 30 seconds i'm sorry
5: okay um now he just went to a kibbutz and there was a visiting group and every single person you know recognized him and stopped and wanted a selfie and uh, he was kind of tickled about that. Did you say selfie?
0: That's the other guy.
3: Um. (laughs) Your fight is our fight. You are fighting for your sovereignty, for your territory, for your language, for your culture, for your democracy, but also for our democracy. Just like what happened on this very ground two years ago. slava uh, Ukraini.
0: Justin Trudeau in uh, Kiev yesterday on the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And we've spent a great deal of time over the last two years speaking about and getting insights into what's happening in Ukraine with guests in Ukraine, as you know, particularly with uh, Ambassador Oleksandr Sherba. He's been a, a great support to us. And we spent some considerable time as well with our next guest, Mr. Boris Rezhnevsky. Um, Boris is a former Liberal Member of Parliament in the Toronto area, but he has very deep ties with uh, with Ukraine. And Boris, thank you so much for coming on. This weekend is, is really so significantly important because – I've heard a lot of stories about the Ukrainian military having challenges now, not enough weapons, not enough shells, not enough what they need to continue fighting the war as effectively as they have been because the west has been slow to deliver. But I would rather focus on and I know that's terribly important and we'll talk about that, but I think it's so incredibly important to recognize the valor and the incredible effort and commitment the Ukrainian military and the people of Ukraine have uh, have delivered for their nation in an existential threat situation and deliver to the rest of the world who'd better recognize that Ukraine is fighting the Russians and causing them some really significant problems should they have military ambitions elsewhere. How are you?
1: Well, on this uh, terrible anniversary, uh, it's a time uh, to reflect and, of course, to remember the tens of thousands of brave Ukrainian soldiers largely a volunteer army who have paid the ultimate the ultimate price.
0: Yeah. Uh Mr. Zelensky saying 31,000 Ukrainian military have lost That's their right. lives but they've taken a tremendous toll out of the Russians as well. Huge toll. I've heard 7 to 1.
1: Uh well most reputable uh uh, foundations and organizations that are monitoring and doing counts uh, believe that over 300,000 Russian soldiers have been lost. And what we're seeing for the first time since World War II is a return to what is called industrial warfare in Europe. Um, and on the Russian side, these uh, horrible meat grinder Uh, attacks. Um, But it's also a time uh, during this anniversary to take a look at what what has occurred. And uh, you reference the bravery of the Ukrainian armed forces. If we go back two years ago, uh, according to Putin, and in fact, most pundits and political leaders in the West, we're talking of a three-day war. Uh, a three-day war. Russian military, the second most powerful military in the world, uh, was to do a blitzkrieg to Kiev, uh, followed by a milit- Russian military-backed coup, the assassination of Zelensky and his family. But instead, what you saw was a rout of the Russian army by an underarmed. Volunteer Ukrainian army, and in that first year of the war, uh, not only were Russians pull, pushed out of Ukraine from around Kiev and Ukraine's north. By the fall in the east, in the Kharkiv region, they were routed. They were routed again in the fall in the south, in uh, the Kherson region. Uh, but in 2023. As, as I've just said, we've seen this return to industrial warfare. And uh, this is where we need to assess our role. Uh, we just heard the Prime Minister talking about how Ukraine's fight is our fight. How, And all of us acknowledge that Ukraine's brave soldiers are the shield for our Western democracies. It's not NATO and the NATO countries. It's, in fact... Ukraine soldiers that are, uh, uh, are that shield. And it was this year that it, it became so painfully clear that uh, the Western lack of speed and the dithering timidity that we've seen in Western leadership to provide Ukraine with the arms that they need. You know, do we provide leopards or don't we provide leopards? Do we provide attack or don't we? Provide, do we provide a, a Abrams tanks? And then suppose a disappointment that Ukraine was only able in the counteroffensive to move about 30 kilometers forward. And then when they do provide arms, there are strings attached. Russia launches attacks from across the border in Russia, but you can't hit them back using Western weapons. And This is the frustrating part is we don't see the sort of resolve that uh, is necessary. Ukraine has said that in this year, they will need 2.5 million million artillery shells. The EU promised 1 million, delivered 250,000. We see Trump and his MAGA poitiery in the House of Representatives preventing, blocking U.S. military aid from getting to Ukraine. We're seeing tactical retreats by the Ukrainian forces uh, when facing these artillery barrages of uh, 10 artillery uh, pieces to one against against the Ukrainians. And uh, Russia is gearing up in this coming year to completely transform its economy into a military economy. Their artillery factories, their tank factories are going 724, three shifts a day. Meanwhile, here in Canada, we can't even hit our 2% commitment to NATO defense.
0: Well, well Boris, uh, we, we heard the uh, uh, the Minister of National Defense talk about uh, no missile defense system having been delivered to Ukraine as was promised. Some time ago, I don't think, I could be wrong, but I don't think we even have any missile defense systems ourselves for this country. So what we are we don't. going to What are we going to do? We, 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 we can't just talk the fight. We have to deliver. It's fine for Mr. Trudeau and the other Western leaders to go and stand beside President Zelensky as they did yesterday, but that's what they do best. And I'm not saying they didn't make efforts. I'm not saying Western nations didn't do a great deal. At the beginning, or for the first year, but there's been domestic interests that have superseded what they really should understand is a global situation and a global challenge. We have the, the 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 commander of the Norwegian military saying we had better be ready for war with Russia in within three years. That's echoed by others, including the leader, the head of the Swedish military, the uh, the head of the British military is saying we need a, a home guard, as it were, 100,000 soldiers ready to go because they are expecting to experience what Ukraine is experiencing, and we're, we're just not delivering to the Ukrainian military what they need, and they have proven they can fight the Russians, even though tremendously outnumbered. They've proven that they can take the Russians out of the game. This is an exceptional um, military, Uh, the the Ukrainian military is exceptional. They've done what nobody expected. You're right. Uh, Two years ago today, everyone expected, okay, we're 24 hours in, it'll be over by uh, 48 hours from now. And then we saw that huge tank column outside of Kiev and and people wondered, what are they doing? Did they run out of gas? And that was one of the rumors, they ran out of gas. But they were being beaten. They were being hammered into submission. And that happened over and over and over. Was it Churchill said, give us the tools and we will do the job.
1: Well, it, it, it's, it's actually uh, quite correct to invoke Churchill because this, this is a repeat of history, the late 1930s. Uh, we're seeing around the world uh, democracy in retreat and the rise of authoritarianism. And in many ways, the global south led by the brics group they're standing on the sidelines and they're watching they're they're watching is the west a paper tiger and, and and the context to this is look the russian economy is 12 times smaller than the eu's economy 20 times smaller than nato's economy and when we talk about the 2% let's not let's put that into context that was when uh, we set that target years ago mm-hmm. when we were politicians were still talking about the peace dividend yeah. during the Cold War. We were spending three to five percent.
0: we were speaking with Boris Vrezhnevsky, a former liberal member of parliament with deep ties to Ukraine, on the 5th of February of this year. Stuart Bell and Jeff Semple of globalnews.ca. Exclusive report Ukrainian general wants Canada's 83,000. Decommissioned rockets; and they were supposed to be delivered to uh, to Ukraine because they can use them in their battle against uh, Adolf Putin. I don't know what's happened with that. I, I, Morris, do you
1: know? No, but it's a recurring theme with uh, Canada and Canadian aid: uh, decommissioned uh, equipment, uh, missiles. We we heard it when it when the debate was about the Leopard tanks don't have any, maybe we have one. Well we have three and then they found another three. So it's, um, it's, it's just a, a recurring reoccurring theme. Uh, but uh, we need to be and show uh, a resoluteness that's been uh, that's been lacking. And uh, Canada still has an opportunity to lead and uh, of course appreciated the Prime Minister on this terrible anniversary went to Ukraine, stood in solidarity with President Zelensky and other world uh, leaders. Uh, But if he wants to show real global leadership on this file, uh, what's this business of 50 sanctioned individuals uh, after Navalny's assassination? Why are we trading and doing business with Russia whatsoever? There should be a total economic blockade. Uh, But uh, coming back to just before the break, uh, uh, there was an interesting uh, uh, set of statistics I wanted to share that speak to what is the cost of a lack of investment in deterrence today. In 1935, the UK uh, spent less than 5% on defense and deterrence. By 1939, it was 18%. And of course, in 1940, it was up to 46%. If Putin is not... Stopped in Ukraine. The Norwegians and Swedes that you had quoted are absolutely correct in their assessments that Putin will not stop with Ukraine. Uh, Roy, you'd also said, um, you know, with deep family ties and ties to people at the front, including I have a number of nephews, uh, one nephew who leads a battalion uh, who was uh, on the Andivka. Uh, front. Yesterday on the anniversary was a day to show solidarity. Um, we saw it not just in Ukraine but around around the world in mass gatherings. But today's Sunday, and today is the day that we say prayers. For many, they're quiet prayers and lighting of candles for uh, lost loved ones. Uh, there isn't a town or village in Ukraine that in their cemeteries there aren't new sections, additions to the cemeteries. Uh, there isn't a town or village or city that you walk through in Ukraine where you don't see men without arms or legs. It's... it's Today being Sunday, like I said, it's a time for prayer and to say prayers for all of those brave soldiers who, who did pay that ultimate price and those walking wounded. And what's astounding is how many, for instance, of those walking wounded, soldiers with prosthetics have actually returned to the front. And it speaks to that Ukrainian bravery that we're seeing. That, uh, and, and I can only hope that it infects some of those politicians that go and travel to Ukraine when they see the resilience, the bravery, uh, and the principled positions of the Ukrainian people and, and their leadership. Uh, so that's, that's our hope for this year. And of course, the arms. As brave and as resilient and as ingen- ingenuous as, uh, as the Ukrainian army and soldiers are, if you don't have your artillery, if you don't have the bullets, you won't be able to win the war. Well, the crazy carbon tax minister has done it again. This time, he's saying that the federal government is not going to support any new road construction.
0: It's prompted. Yeah. Ontario Premier Doug Ford on air with John Oakley at our Toronto AM640 Global News radio station to say words to the effect of who's, who's the prime minister? Is it Gilbo or is it, uh, is it Trudeau? I sometimes wonder myself because Gilbo says things and nobody seems to say anything about it. He just shoots his mouth off and walking around with a little bicycle helmet. It's kind, of, it's kind of cool. Some people have a rabbit's foot. Too bad for the rabbit. And some people have a bicycle helmet. What do you have, Tom Korsky? What do you walk around with?
2: I, I follow <laughs> the science. <laughs> I'm not superstitious <laughs> whatsoever.
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness. How are you?
2: I'm well, thank you, Roy.
0: Tom Korsky, editor of Black Locks Reporter at Minding Ottawa. And what a week it's been in Ottawa. Why don't we start with uh, with Gilbo and his will be no. Mo- this is really particularly interesting to me for a liberal cabinet minister, even if it's thirty years or twenty years after Adscam, to say there'll be no more envelopes. I, th- I thought, what the hell is going on here? A liberal cabinet minister, Tom, saying no more envelopes with money in them. I thought, I thought, yeah. I-, I thought that that went away with Chrétien.
2: Yes, uh, Steve Gibo. Um, you know, the Transport Committee called him up. There was a Conservative MP, Mark Straw from BC. And he had a motion, get Gibo down here. We have a lot of questions about his road announcement, which he then attempted to walk back. And various cabinet officers have said, no, no, there's no change in policy. Of course, we love roads. No one's going to stop uh, taking care of the roads. But there was an MP, a block MP from uh, Quebec, who made, uh, I thought, the, a very interesting point, And he said, you know, um, uh, Gibo's words speak for themselves. And you can't do that when you're a cabinet minister in a G7 country. Everyone knows uh, Steve likes to bike in downtown Montreal. But for the 99.9% of Canadians who don't have that lifestyle, when you go to a conference, a luncheon in Montreal with the public transit advocates, you don't get to sort of make it up as you go along on account of you represent all the people all the time. And um, the... They are going to get Kibo down. It is minimum hour of cross-examination. I don't think he's going to enjoy himself, Roy.
0: I doubt it. But, you know, he's he's a pretty combative guy uh, when he gets going, and who knows what's going to come out of his mouth if he gets riled up. There may be other cabinet ministers who are covering for him before the end of the day. Who knows what he's going to say?
2: Uh, it's my two cents, Roy. I, I, I don't want to be cruel. Or dismissive. I think Gibo is operating beyond his capacity and has for quite some time. I think he would be an excellent Montreal councillor. I think that's his comfort zone, and he could you could go to meetings. He can you talk about why can't we have more parks and bicycle lanes? I don't think uh, Gibo has really certainly as heritage minister even before he became environment minister, he didn't have a lot of wins. This guy has some <laughs> explaining to do, not just on roads. But they've engaged in a very expensive program. They haven't costed it out. They haven't lowered emissions. We're going into year nine, Roy, on the climate program. <laughs> nine years. Billions of dollars have been spent. And it appears to be a futile exercise in irritating people. That's where they are.
0: Yeah. The last weekend, uh, we talked to our good friend, Professor Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie University, who gilbert with Professor. enthusiasm totally misquoted in parliament. And I played the clip for Sylvan, and asked him if Gilboy called to apologize. Surprise, surprise. Not at that point. He hadn't. So <laughs> it just continues. Look, let's, let's have a go at, uh, at, uh, ad scam or whatever it was called. I- I'm starting to say ad scam all the time. or names arrive scam. I- I've, got, I've got all of these scams on my mind. I've been saying, uh, ad- arrive scam instead of arrive can, but well, we've talked about this a great deal over the last couple of weeks, including yesterday, Tom. But here we are, and uh, you on uh, Blackhawks Reporter, you quoted two former managers uh, of the Arrive Can program, and all the fingers pointed at all 32 compass points, don't they?
2: It's a bad one, Roy, and it's headed in, in the wrong direction for Cabinet. I, I, it, it, bizarrely, forgive my uh, two cents, There have been uh, members of government caucus who have tried to get in the way of multiple investigations going on now. We have to say there is no evidence there was any cabinet direction in steering millions in sweetheart contracts to favored insider contractors who really did become millionaires off this deal. The two managers you mentioned who were responsible for overseeing the program at the Canada Border Services Agency found it was such an amazing success. They have both been suspended without pay, and they are in court against their former employers, federal court. So not a success. A lot of money has been spent. There's been no real explanation except obvious inference that there were shenanigans. It's impossible, even in government Canada, in Ottawa, to throw away $60 million without any paperwork. The implication was that certain, this is not frontline customs officers, this is upper management, someone rifled the filing cabinet to get rid of the documents. Well, there's only one reason you do that when the investigators are knocking on the door. This is a bad one, Roy, and there is, I can tell you, absolute determination by all opposition parties to get to the bottom of it. I think they will. And why any government caucus member would want to be clever or ironic or try to filibuster investigations is beyond me. Because this thing is just a dumpster fire. It's a disaster.
0: It is. Complete disaster. So back to Gilbo, if we can, at least thematically. He's been selling the, uh, the climate issue, or trying to, to Canadians and infuriating premiers along the way. But you have a majority of Canadians confused and anxious, you're right, on Blackslog's reporter about climate change, while 20% are uninterested. Those are not good numbers.
2: They're not. And you know what's interesting is this is what the climate program has become for them. Privy Council Office, that's at the very top of the federal bureaucracy. We had to get this through access to information. It was like pulling teeth, so help me. They commission what they call behavioral science. You say, they're doing what? Like you would think they're they're just running the passport office would run them at at 60 miles an hour. No, they're commissioning behavioral science research into climate change. And they want to know what people think about climate change, not based on your age or where you live, your gender, your ethnicity, but based on your outlook. And I'm not, so help me, this is on the level. I'm quoting them. We identify five segments of Canadians representing five unique ways that Canadians respond to climate change. What did they find? I'm confused, less anxious, worried about climate change, say 37%. I'm highly anxious, willing to make change. I'm the most committed, say 25%. I'm ambivalent, say 18%. I'm completely indifferent, say 13%. 7% say, to hell with you i'm unconcerned with climate change i will go to the wall to resist any climate change programs why does this profit the government of canada that can't lower emissions right how does this help them in their multi-billion dollar scheme to remake an entire industrial economy yeah don't, i don't know
0: don't spend it. but
2: they attach value to this gibberish they're no wonder Steve GIBOT fantasizes about getting rid of roads. This is this is where their head is.
0: Yeah, don't spend money to prove yourself wrong. It's not. <laughs> it's not. It's not good policy. It's not sound thinking. It doesn't generally work out very well. If I've got a hundred bucks, I'm not going to spend it to uh, to to help you, Tom Corsby, prove that I'm wrong. I'm going to spend More. it in some ways to prove that I'm right when I'm not. So, well, we know we're talking about money. So federal payroll costs in a record $67 billion. And my mind said, well, I can't tell you what my mind said. It was not polite. And then I thought, was that $67 million? And, uh, tell us what you found out.
2: A lot of money. That's the budget officer going through a budget document called uh, supplementary estimates. And and those are just routine documents where Cabinet wants to top up various funds. And Budget Officer Giroux did the arithmetic, and he came up with a figure of $67.4 billion in payroll for the government of Canada. That's uh, salary and benefits. Well, how many public employees are there who work for the government of Canada? And he's counted 428,000. When the current government took power, there was 340000 That's an increase of about 70000 The expenses are going up about 9% a year. Well, this is a lot of numbers. What does it mean? Uh, last year, Budget Officer Giroux testified in Senate National Finance Committee, and forgive me, Roy, it was rather blood-curdling testimony. He said, this is a system that's broken. I'm quoting him, quote, unquote, this is a system that's broken. What did he mean? He said they're spending money left and right. But where do you see the results, he commented famously on the passport office? Why do I give a damn how much they're spending on the payroll office, how much they've increased the payroll if I can't get a passport? Where is the results that people need the programs and the services they pay for? He described it as a system that's broken and that can only end badly. Uh, Roy, uh, you're a young man. You won't recall in 1995, Finance Minister Paul Martin uh, encountered similar budget deficits, recurring deficits, and he fired 45,000 federal employees. Of all people, the Public Service Alliance, the largest public service union, is keenly aware of these costs. You just don't hear it from Cabinet. They won't balance a budget. They won't stop spending. And they're going to do it all over again next month when they have another budget.
0: Mr. Martin sat right across from me at this very table, having that discussion, Tom. And then we had another one about the GST, but that's a story for another day. But he did. He, he, and, and he was very direct. But when we spoke earlier today with uh, Mr. Giroux, he's a, he's a great friend of this program's, and I asked him about this, and he went through it in a matter-of-fact kind of way, and at the end, I said to him, is there anything that causes you to lose sleep at night? And he got around to saying, one of the things that he's concerned about is the amount of money that we pay for the lack of service that we receive. Not exactly his words, but close enough. And that is what I think all of us find when we get into, uh, into dealing with the federal government or try to. And here we are spending $67 billion on pay and, uh, and benefits, like pensions. We made a wrong decision somewhere along the r- line, Tom.
2: And we, you know the irony, Roy? Yeah. They've increased spending on consultants at the same time. Oh, they will spend oh, another not? 14 it's... to $16 billion a year on consultants like the geniuses who came up with a Rive can <laughs> at, uh, at $60 million. A program that, that uh, by the government's own estimate, cost at least no more than one-tenth of that figure. Someone's doing okay.
0: Someone's and doing someone's okay. have to pay. You know, I actually went on their, on their, uh, was it GC strategies? I went on their That's website right. and it's quite an impressive website. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful. It really is <laughs> quite impressive. It's like, wow, these guys know what they're doing. <laughs> oh
2: yes. And how. <laughs> and
0: how. And you know, they really did know what they were doing and they knew who they were doing it to. Karski and green and the rest of us. Anyway, what about Mr. Fraser? What's up with Sean Fraser?
2: Sean Fraser is uh, running for something. You say, wait a minute, he's already MP for Central Nova Nova Scotia and Minister of Housing. Well, there is no leadership contest, declared. The Prime Minister said he's here for for the long haul, year nine. But Sean Fraser, of all places, decided to have a fundraiser for the Central Nova Liberal Association (laughs) at the Petroleum Club in Calgary. And who attended? Well, there was a former mayor of Calgary, Al Dewar, a former liberal MP from Calgary. Kent Hare was Minister of Veterans Affairs for one term. And there were uh, other prominent VIPs, (laughs) Calgary liberal VIPs, (laughs) paid $500 a head to raise money for Sean Fraser's Riding Association, which is 4,800 kilometers away. Now, we asked uh, Minister Fraser, what's up with that? No comment. He was asked earlier by reporters, You're running for the leadership, aren't you? No comment. So he's clearly keenly interested all of a sudden (laughs) in raising funds in in Calgary. What did one of his fundraisers say, by the way? This was former MP Hare, said in a very spirited LinkedIn post The party's dead on arrival. Polyev is uh, smart and engaging. And we, there has to be something done because people are saying, what have you done for me lately? It was not an endorsement of the current <laughs> cabinet. <laughs> yes. So, so yeah, something's going on. Now,
0: right? <laughs> something's going on. <laughs> That's a country song just waiting to be written. Something's going on. Maybe it has been written already and recorded. Who knows? Okay. One more story here, Tom, please tell us about how many Canadians are facing energy poverty. Huge issue.
2: Uh, this is stark. Uh, peer-reviewed research by uh, led by a McGill professor, they find up to 19% of Canadians, this is almost unbelievable, this is, just upsets you, up to 19% of Canadians are facing energy poverty. They define that as when you are paying a disproportionate amount of your monthly income for home heating. They say in this peer-reviewed paper in the Canadian Journal of Public Health, that obviously in Canada, I'm quoting, home heating during the winter months is a matter of life and death. And what did they find? They have found instances where there are Canadians who are keeping the temperature so low it's below freezing. So you're wearing the parka inside the house because you can't afford energy in a land that is rich in energy. It is beyond ironic. It's almost infuriating. But I guess Steve Giebel would say, you know, you can warm up by getting on your bicycle. Roy, this is stark for a lot of people. Everyone can see their natural gas bills. They know what's going on.
0: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend.